Hello, welcome everybody um, to uh, the latest instalment in the, the ongoing Orpheus saga here at ENO. Um, so, just to introduce the panel very quickly, um, but we'll speak to them all individually in due course. Nish, uh, first of all, well, I'll go left. I'll go from the side. Jeffrey, um, uh, sorry. First of all, Jeffrey Patterson, the, the conductor. Uh, Nisha Jones, the director. Um, Nick, Nicholas Le Lester, the, who's playing the title role. Nikki Spencer, who's playing. Say your name, the character name. Ertubiz. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> uh, and uh, Corin Young, who is the week's makeup supervisor for this production, but also heads up the department uh, that is responsible for wigs and makeup. So, um, if I start with, um, well, first of all, how many of you guys have seen the other two, uh, operas so far? So, quite, quite a few of you. Um, so, uh, uh, Nisha, how did this come about for you? Because this is your ENO debut. Yes. Should I grab this one? Yes. Ta-da. Yes. Perfect. Hello, everybody. Um, so this e extremely fun journey started with a slightly strange meeting with uh, Daniel Kramer and Bob Holland in what was introduced to me as the King's Toilet. You probably know about this little room downstairs. It's got a fantastic WC. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> Um, it, was, it was very, very surreal because I came to this building that I know so well. I've obviously come here since I was a very young child. Probably the first opera that I saw was here when I was at school and it changed my life. And I think this is why the under 18s thing that's happening now is absolutely amazing. Because, you know, some teens you'll catch and some you won't, but the ones that you do, it will change their lives forever. And that's what happened to me. So, um, you know, I've been in and out of this building really since I was very small. And anyway, I was, you know, called in as one is um, to this meeting. And we met in this kind of cupboard. And I didn't know what the offer was really. So we just introduced, you know, I was introduced to Daniel and Bob. And they said, well, we're thinking about doing this season of, of uh, Orpheus operas. And we're looking at Orfe by Philip Glass. And um, it, was, it was great. It's not an opera that I knew but the film I really knew. So my heart leapt, actually. I studied French at Oxford, and if you study French, it's very hard really to avoid Jean Cocteau. He's kind of, he knew everybody, he was ubiquitous, he's everywhere. And, and so straight away I thought, ah, that's a goodie. And I work with projection and film, and this one obviously is based on a film. And uh, so, yeah, the thing flew off the page. It was, a, it was quite an easy yes, really. And you are multitasking on this, this production. You are, you've also translated now, it. Partly I'm multitasking because I multitask, and that's the way that I work. I have um, uh, an amazing team, um, a, a little creative studio called Lightmap, and together we tend to take on the kind of the whole project because what I'm really always looking for in a slightly pretentious way is this idea of the Gesamtkunstwerk, the, 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 the really whole artwork. Opera is just this amazing art form where totally disparate elements come together to create this whole. And so that is how I've always worked. I, I, I've always directed and designed as a kind of thing, not by myself, because I have a studio, but that's been a kind of through conceived thing. But also in this case, because of uh, Jean Cocteau, he really did that. He was called Le Touche, tout sublime. He was a jack of all trades. He loved doing everything. In fact, you could barely stop him from building the set himself and they had to restrain him. Um, and so it felt kind of conceptually appropriate as well. 
I have to say, you're all friends of this wonderful company, and, and I am too. But actually, as a rule, I am not sure about translating operas into English. I, I absolutely see the idea, these two amazing women that set up this company at a time when you know, women doing anything like this was very significant. And the fact of it being in English and really just opening it up to as many people as possible, I think is a deeply inspiring idea. I, I mean, I think it's a conversation that can go on and on and on, so I won't start it now. But I was not sure about this particular case because this is a film which is very well known. It's an iconic film, Orphée, by Jean Cocteau. And it felt slightly to me that translating it into English was a little bit like dubbing a film. And we don't tend to dub films anymore. We're more comfortable with foreign films with subtitles. So there was, that was a whole kind of conversation. I knew I was onto a non-starter when I said, can we just do it in French? You know, there was a stony silence and it was clear the answer was no. So, um, but translation is something obviously that I have a, a, a long training in. I mean, I, I, you know, that's what I was really doing at, at university at, for a lot of the time. But also what I was very interested in is um, what that meant to translate this piece. I, I look back over the kind of the history of translation. If you look at it in terms of the um, evolution of translation, you know, if you think about the Romans translating Greek texts, they overran them. You know, they were conquests. They took the Greek and they turned it into a Roman text. They improved it so it could be Roman. And then when you look a bit later into kind of Elizabethan times, there was an idea that you could just pinch texts. You stole texts and you did what you wanted with them. You created new words in your own language from other languages. And then later on into the 18th century, there was a, a sense of the value of other countries and a more a kind of worldliness. And you were allowed to leave the text feeling foreign. And if you look at translators of Cocteau, They've gone through all of these permutations. There's a, a wonderful translator, Margaret Crossland, who actually was uh, in that kind of era that it was about making the text as English as possible. So she took these Cocteau texts, and she, they kind of read a bit like Enid Blyton. You know, they're, they're jolly hockey sticks, and it doesn't feel like Cocteau at all anymore. But it feels very fluent. It feels very English. But that didn't feel right. That Roman idea of conquest didn't feel appropriate here. And then neither really did the idea of kind of stealing it feel appropriate. What felt much more appropriate is to let it be as French as possible. And so uh, I did the translation with Emma Jenkins. And the painful thing about translation is it takes absolutely ages and you want nobody to notice it. So it's one of those awful things because you're never going to get a really good, you know, lot of praise for this. What you really want is for the thing to be invisible. So we spent, you know, that, that amount of time. But it was a really wonderful way into the piece because you really get into the nitty-gritty of what every line means. And it does, in the end, save you a lot of time because you can take that into the rehearsal room. And when, you know, Nick or Nikki ask me a difficult question, which they do all the time, I usually do know the answer. I really have kind of had to drill right into the nuance. And sometimes, you know, the French can go either way. And when one is a translator, you have to kind of decide which way you'd like it to go. So after... As a director, that's also interesting. You're, you're making the interpretation as you're making the translation. So it means there isn't any conflict, really. And it also means that when they don't like it, we can change it. And we don't have to phone anybody up and say, is this OK? We can just do it in the room. And, and, and Jeffrey had a, a, a very big hand as well in, in um, pushing it to something that felt you know, musically very fluent. So that's been fun. And of course, 
in, in theatre, because I'm a theatre critic in, in real life, um, translate every um, classic play gets retranslated each time because um, language changes. Um, is, is that the same case here as, as has from the film, for instance, because the film presumably has sur surtitles or subtitles. Uh, were they a reference point for you or did you just start again? No, I didn't look at the film subtitles at all because I think the job is so different in film subtitles. What I think you want when you're watching a film is to be able to read them very quickly and actually to be able to you know, follow, follow the film. And here, because we have two translations, we have the translation from the Cocteau script into English, but we also have Philip Glass's translation, his translation of a film into an opera. And so he has already made some decisions and some interpretative choices. And of course, when you're creating an underlay for an opera, you're thinking very much about the sung line, specifically in this case when you're dealing with French, because obviously I've translated from other languages as well. What Philip Glass does, Philip Glass is super fluent at French, and he because he spent so much time there, and it's so much part of his sensibility and thinking. And yet his, Fr his French is totally fluent, but it is also somehow wonderfully American. So the piece is French and American in this beautiful, very kind of poignant way. But he sets French very beautifully, and a lot of um, French words obviously have a, a, a slightly um, kind of uh, silent or fading second syllable. You know, um, habille or grenouille or these, and you know they they kind of fall away, and so it became very obvious that in English we didn't want to put you know two quavers in at that moment. You had to kind of drop the second note in a way. So these are kind of technical things yes. that became apparent as as you went along. Which you'd have to work with uh, Jeffrey on, presumably. Well, we didn't work with Jeffrey. We ignored Jeffrey totally. <laughs> but <laughs> but when Jeffrey and I came together to look at it. It was very, very helpful. Firstly, it's very helpful to have, you know, such a consummate musician just reading through it. I was a bit dreading Jeffrey's notes. I thought, oh, this is going to be thick, plenty of, you know, errata. But in fact, it was there. Uh, it was all right. You know, we I felt, felt we went. We started off on a good footing. I thought this is going to be fine, um, because Jeffrey was much more bold with the notes than I would have been. I, I mean, I. It's again this thing. I feel, I felt I would rather go towards the notes than the words. I, I, it's, a, it's a very personal decision. And I know that the house thinking is very much, oh, sounds so, so fluent, so idiomatic. It's a, more, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a more Roman concept. It's more of a conquest. And I was rather happy for it to sound a little bit odd or a little bit French, as somehow un unnatural. But what I think we've come to is something that I hope does found, you know, sounds fluent and natural but allows itself to remain somehow a bit Frenchy, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because, of course, singability is presumably a high, high on the stakes. Uh, so, Jeffrey, um, your involvement, this is, again, your ENO debut as well. Um, and I gather you've not worked with on a glass opera before either. No, it's my, my first experience conducting Philip Glass's music. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> Very familiar, I mean, of course, particularly with the, the great productions that have been here of Aknatan Satyagraha and with the sound of his music. And we all have an idea, you know, even people who've never heard a Philip Glass piece, if they know the name, they'll have an idea of what the music sounds like. Yeah. Um, and what I think is fascinating about this piece is that, I mean, for instance, in Aknatan Satyagraha, where the, there is something epic intrinsically about those pieces and, and scale is created through repetition because of course repetition is kind of the intrinsic technique of this music. 
Um, in this piece, which lasts just over an hour and a half, there are 18 scenes. And there are very few scenes that are longer than five minutes. And so the effect of the music is very different. This, the, the, the sense in which it can create this magical trance. In a few of the scenes, that becomes relevant. But in a lot of the scenes, the music is very up-tempo and energized. I mean, uh, it would be very interesting for somebody who didn't know whether it was a glass opera to hear the opening scene and to identify the composer, which for a composer whose style is so, I mean, familiar to the point of cliché, yeah. it's, it's a very interesting thing, both in the kind of minute detail of what the music sounds like, but also in its general effect, which is extremely energised and flexible and responsive to this extremely peculiar treatment of the Orpheus myth, which is, in a sense... <laughs> Cocteau's using the Orpheus myth as a, as a hook to create a piece about himself. <laughs> um, and it is extremely peculiar and, and funny, quite often quite funny. And the music reflects that, in a, as I say, in a very versatile and, and flexible and responsive way. And that's perhaps something that is not so familiar, at least amongst people who know these big epic pieces of glass because it's a very different approach and it's a very, very interesting one for me because it, as a conductor, it, 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 it gives me all of the same challenges that there are in any operatic repertoire. Um, there, there's barely a moment where something settles, and particularly with the vocal lines, which of course are not minimalist at all. They're very syllabic, but they're extremely complex in their own way. Um, and the drama of the scene is always being reflected in the twists and turns of the music. Um, talking of twists and turns, I mean, you, you mentioned this, this treatment of the story. Um, we've got th there's three other treatments of this story in, in this theatre, um, and there's one on Broadway as well, Hades Town. So, for, for some reason, this, this, this story is very uh, resonant at the moment. Why, why is that, do you think? Well, I mean, it's, 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 it's a myth. It's a myth that everybody knows it yeah. has in it. Love and death. I mean, <laughs> apart from love and death, suspense, drama. Um, for Cocteau, I mean, I can't, I can't really say what, for him, exactly where the relationship between this myth and his own, as a very eccentric narrative that he creates in this piece, yeah. how that, where, where the join is. Because one, one can follow very clearly here in this piece if you know that it's Orpheus. Yes. what's going on. I think if you didn't know, you'd work it out. I, th I, I think it becomes pretty clear, even without the names. The character names are obviously the giveaway. Um, but there are points in it where the story completely diverges from the, you know, the classic treatment of the myth. Um, and, of course, it's set in... Well, the, the film is from 1950, and, uh, and, and we are set in 1950. Um, there is nothing Greek about it, I would say. It's very French, but not very Greek. Uh, wh why is it set in 1950? Is that because a tribute to the film? Yes. Yes. I mean, our opera isn't really set in 1950, but we are really reflecting on the film. Yes. So actually what we're doing is we're kind of doing a, a forensic exploration of the film. If y The opera is actually a chamber opera. It was written for rather small forces, and we're obviously on, on a very large stage. And so I felt that I, it needed a little bit of expansion. But also it is a piece which is like a mirror of itself and of multiple other things. Uh, Cocteau, the Orpheus myth was really central to Cocteau's thinking. He just, for some reason, he, he comes back to it and over and over again. Um, this 
film made in 1950 reflects back onto a play that he wrote in 1926, Ofe, and there are some lines absolutely taken from it. But the interesting thing in our Ofe is, although, as Jeffrey says, there's kind of a putative association with the Orpheus myth, really the myth that we're looking at is the myth of Narcissus. Because the piece is so much about Jean Cocteau, everything Jean Cocteau ever did was about Jean Cocteau. He was certainly mesmerized with himself. But he was also, um, he was every single line in the film, when you, when you delve into his biography, every line refers to some event in his life. And that actually widens the whole thing out um, to be able to make a piece which is itself and is also about itself. So you'll see I've, I've expanded, I've allowed this multiple hall of mirrors really to people our stage. We have Philip Glass on the stage. We have Nadia Boulanger, the wonderful composition teacher with whom Philip Glass studied in Paris. This formative period of his life. He's written in his beautiful autobiography, Words Without Music, a lot about his time in Paris. And you see these connections with um, Cocteau. Our piece, Offé, opens in this artist's cafe where the poet Offé, who's a little bit older, isn't so successful, is feeling a little bit irrelevant, is surrounded by these hip, young, trendy and cool people who are super popular and successful. And this is a very, very interesting and fun Parisian scene. Uh, Philip Glass describes when he first arrived in Paris, he went over on the Queen Mary. He was a Fulbright scholar. He was a teenager and he'd only been to Baltimore and Chicago. Suddenly he arrives in Paris on the left bank and he goes to a cafe. And it's an artist's night at this cafe and they all strip naked and they paint each other. And he thought it was the most exciting thing <laughs> he'd ever seen in his life. And he said, the bohemian life that you see in Offé, the film, is the life that I wanted to be a part of, which is so super sweet and, and really kind of feeds back into our performance. Have you been in touch with Philip? Philip? Yes, we've had a, a lovely... I mean, he's just the nicest possible guy. And he, his love for Cocteau is genuine and profound. And mine is a bit more um, snobby and intellectual because, you know, that's what you're trained to be like um, if you go to a university like Oxford. You're a little bit like a Jean Cocteau. But Philip said to me, I think Jean Cocteau is France's greatest poet. And, and his connection is so wonderful. He was a teenager in Chicago. He'd just gone out of Baltimore and there was nothing in Baltimore, nothing at all. But in Chicago, there were French art house films. So for somebody like the, the young Philip Glass, who was just like all really great creative people, he was hungry. And he went to these art house films. And one of the ones he saw was, was Orphée. And he was in his teens. And he said, you know, it blew him away. And his relationship with the films of Cocteau is so profound. And, and then in the 90s, he started this trilogy of which Orphée is one, where he really explored the films of Jean Cocteau to others as well to look in some detail at the relationship between film and music. And the whole thing is a kind of, you feel like it's a lifelong project. But the other thing he said is that he didn't feel that he could have addressed Offé and, and translated it into a, an opera when he was in his 30s. He had to wait, really, till he was in his 50s. And I have wondered a lot what he meant by that. But I think what it is, is this sense of this character that Nick plays, Offé, who is you know, slightly out of fashion now. He was incredibly popular and incredibly hip and trendy, and now he's feeling the pinch a little bit. And I wondered if one does have to have arrived at a certain age to get a sense of what that's like, to get a sense that there's a whole new generation coming up, you know, underneath you, and they are deeply threatening. So I think there's, there's lots in there. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned uh, the, 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 the collision of different genres here. Um, of course, you, you introduced film in, in you're, you're filming at the moment, I'm, I'm told, 
Um, so how does the film get introduced? Well, it seemed to me, I mean, one could, and many people have, do this performance and not refer to Jean Cocteau at all. You could, you know, you could just take the opera and, and set it anywhere, really, but I couldn't. It would have been impossible for me to do that because Orphée is so deeply ingrained, I know it almost off by heart. And so I was very interested in really exploring what that means. What does it mean to translate a film into an opera? It's a very unusual thing. Quite often a novel might be turned into an opera or some other kind of textual reference. Films very rarely. And so it opens up a whole dialogue that one can have. Obviously, I'm, well, not obviously, why should you know this, but I will let you know now. I'm very interested in the relationship between film and projected media and, and live classical music because one is a fixed medium and one has to be uh, alive. You know, it has to be spontaneous and fluid and fluent, and those two things are very difficult to marry together. And yet, I think it's a lovely tool. It's a lovely theatrical tool. And here we, we do reflect on the film. We reflect on the ideas of film because... For Jean Cocteau, filmmaking, as much as drawing or writing, was all about creating poetry. He thought of himself as a poet in any medium. So it didn't matter what he was working in, he was making a poem. And he's interested in the poetic reality of film or the poetic unreality of film. It's very poignant. Death was all around Jean Cocteau. But film has this capacity to rewind. It can bring the dead back to life. And then the Orpheus myth... This is very profound, and it's really at the center of, of our piece. The fact that film can create another possibility that is heartbreakingly not possible in real life. When somebody dies, we lose them. And yet in film, they actually can live forever. They can live on celluloid forever, and you can have this capacity to rewind. You can turn back time, which I think for Jean Cocteau was very beautiful. And what about, let's turn to our singers. Um, working on... Usually in, in, in this house, you come here and work on an opera, but you, you have to do filming as well. So how's that been? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I initially I was sort of uh, anxious about it, I suppose, about how the day might go, the pacing of it and that sort of thing. But actually I found the experience really, really enjoyable. I mean, for a start, we have Nisha who comes into the room completely prepared, knows exactly uh, the shapes, the pictures that she wants, how she's going to achieve that. Um, got a very clear idea about the sort of timing of all of that so there's no sort of standing around wondering what's going on um and and the instructions you're given are very very clear and it's easy to give nisha what she's asking for because she asks in a very clear and precise way and is very good at saying that's what i want that's not what i want how and that's refreshing how many, how many filming days have you had so far I know I, still i've just go. had the one yes yeah right but uh, there have been several days haven't there yeah how far down the line are you with the filming and so basically we had a week before we started. It's very surreal for performers to do filming before we've gone into the rehearsal room. I put them in their full costume, hair and makeup, and suddenly they're a character. And it's, it can be very shocking because normally one would, you know, workshop and da-da-da. But it is unbelievably helpful and brilliant. And I've done it several times. So the initial shock is quite often got over. And the embodiment of character before we've even started rehearsal informs the whole rehearsal period. It's an incredible tool, actually. I'd probably do it even if I didn't need the film because it really helps me. Firstly, I get to know the performer really intimately, really quickly. 
And then they also f kind of get this feeling of this character before we've even done anything. Because they've got the full, they know exactly what this character looks like, what how he dresses, you know, what he feels like. And it's a very abstract day because I say things like look cross, look happy, you know, very vague things. But it gives me a real feeling for the performer. And when you have such incredible performers as I have, the whole thing is, is just a gift, it rolls on. So we did a week of filming, and now all we have to do is one day, because what I do with that material is then I work with it over time, and I realize that I've missed a couple of things, and so we have one day, we, we call it pickups, you know, it's things like, I need Orfe, for example, looking worriedly to the left, for whatever reason, we don't need to worry about why, and possibly I missed that, so we just go back and, and we pick up those ones. Um, and so you two are, you, but these these two are debutantes, but you two have both worked here regularly at the NENO. Yes, we have. <laughs> so, so, but but have you ever, have you done glass before? I've never done glass before. I have handled many glasses, generally with wine in them. <laughs> but uh, I have sung quite a bit of contemporary music, and music which sounds a bit like glass. People that have kind of studied with glass and who have been closely associated with yeah. glass. Your last opera here was a brand new one, uh, mm. the Jack the Ripper music. Jack the Ripper. And before that, the Nico um, Muli. Nico Muli, yes, in 2010. Uh, so you worked with, with contemporary music before, new music, which where you're the first person to sing it. Absolutely, and that's really, that's really special. I mean, obviously that's not the case in, with Orfe, but you know, being able to set up your stall with something, you get quite protective over it. Yeah. You know, you feel like you've given birth. So what was the appeal of, of doing this one? Why, why, when, when you were approached for it, why did you say yes? Well, I was interested to work with Nisha because I'm a fan. I won't embarrass her now, but I am a fan. And um, it's also something interesting to work in with mixed media because I think it really does bring a new audience to opera as well. And I think that's important. And for me, I think they said that I was a bit too fat to play Orf Orf Orpheus in the Offenbach. So when they said I should come and do... True story, ladies and gentlemen. That's fine, I dodged, I dodged a bullet. Fat shaming. <laughs> and so, no, actually, no, they said I was the wrong look or something. They said I was too tall, which normally means I'm too fat. And um, no, but I was, I was really happy to come and play Ertubis because he's, he's a very interesting character. And Why so? Tell, tell us some more. Well, he... In general, actually, with the whole piece, it's, it's like looking into a mirror, really, and a mirror is being held up to you in terms of what human nature is like. And so Eltubes is dead, basically, and he died a couple of weeks ago and is kind of having his first foray into dead life in this kind of limbo and what that means. And so he's having to be a chauffeur. He had a very kind of quite a sad, desperate life, and so he ended his life. And then when he's, he's here on Earth, you know, carrying out some different um, bits and bobs and other people's agendas, and it's almost like he gets, he's having another look at life, and I think it's, it's quite poignant for him because he's able to see it afresh. And he was in a dreadful relationship when he was alive before, and now he's dead. He's actually lusting after Orfe, but in quite a kind of sweet, touching way and looking at something quite objectively which if you've ever had therapy and they tell you to take kind of, you know, emotion out of things. And I think it's kind of a bit like that for Ertubis, so it's been interesting for me. And what about you, uh, Nicholas? Um, you, you, you've, you've worked here before at ENO. Yeah, I'm really, really lucky. Um, for some reason, I did an audition and three things came at once. It was amazing. Um, yeah, I was here for the Bohem most recently and the Merry Widow as well. Yes. 
but uh, I, I have actually done one Philip Glass opera before, and it's actually quite similar to this in structure. I um, mean, Geoffrey was talking about that before, but I've done The Trial by Philip Glass, which right. is based on the Franz Kafka novel. Yes. Yeah. Uh, where was that? In, uh, I did that with Scottish Opera, so that was the revival of the production a company uh, Music Theatre Wales had done. Right. They commissioned him for that one, I believe. And what are the special challenges of singing glass? I would say memorising it. Um, because with this and with the trial, um, the, I would say the dramatic musical peaks aren't as drastic as this. We've got much more of this sort of a, a linear sort of dramatic and musical scale, uh, landscape. And so, for example, with the, with the trial, initially when I was learning that, I was... I saw that there was a 7-8 scene, and, and for, for me, um, I was like, 7-8, anything with an 8 underneath gets a bit confusing for me. I, I was, you know, confident I could manage the 3-4 the and the 4-4. Four, four. But actually with that, because of the rhythm and the structure that gave me, that became my favourite scene in that. And in the same way with this one, where we have um, uh, scenes in 10-8 or 7-8, um, they, for some reason, give a different rhythmic pulse than the 3-4 and the 4-4. Four, four. And just getting technical for a second, the trickiness for me with the 3-4 and 4-4 four, four is, is upbeats and things because it's not a consistent spot that we're going to start the vocal line. Sometimes we're starting at the end of a bar. Sometimes we're starting on a, a quaver or a crotchet or, you know, a, and so they're the challenges remembering, particularly when there's like a, there's a scene where I, I do three phrases that are nearly identical and it's taken me this long to work out that the first time I sing on the beat, the second time I sing on the upbeat, and then I come back and sing the same sort of phrase with different text on the, um, what we go back to? The other one, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, basically, just don't ask singers to count yeah. while doing anything else. Because you have to sing and walk and pick up props and count. It's, you know, it's like a Sudoku. <laughs> Presumably that's what Jeffrey's here for. To help you. Oh, he has his uses. We are so lucky to have Jeffrey. Now and then, now and then. Yes. His, his left, left hand is going to be very, very busy with this and that one, and yeah. and then it's going to turn into a this one. Yeah, yeah. No, I have to say, I mean, it is fr from the cast. It's an extraordinarily impressive job, sort of learning this music, and and characterising it, because I mean, th there are very few slurs in the vocal lines. They're, it's it's very syllabic. It's, I mean, the 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 libretto is the film script with. Uh, slightly abridged, um, and it's it's set in this sort of quasi recitative way. And the, as as they're saying, the way that the lines are set against the meter of the music, that there's a kind of simultaneous thing going on that is not in parallel. And it's it is extraordinarily challenging and quite uncanny, in fact, because it's something that well, I'm sure won't be evident. And in fact, when you listen to it, it's not evident at all. But then when you get into the nitty-gritty, thank goodness, this is far more complicated than it seems on the surface. To sing it accurately, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Presumably it's also orchestrally challenging, too, for your players. Oh, it is. And I mean, of course, this orchestra is, is a very seasoned orchestra when it comes to playing Philip Glass's music, yes. which has been a great help to me. You know, going into yeah. a first rehearsal, there was very little for me to sort of set up in terms of just sort of basic principles because yeah. I mean for music that is really in this piece especially a lot of it is very expressive and romantic um, rubato is forbidden I mean you, the pulse is there and orchestras classical musicians create expression by giving space to the pulse I've been lucky in the last few years to do a lot of work with jazz musicians that has been very very instructive and educational for me 
in terms of how one can create expression without deviating a fraction from a metronomic pulse. And that's yeah. the big challenge that the music creates. And, and the scoring, because I think in part, as Nisha said, it was originally a chamber piece. It was originally for s single string players and six wind and brass players, a bit of percussion and, and harp. Um, we're doing it with an expanded string section, but those that small contingent of wind and brass players remains. And so the scoring is sometimes very eccentric, and it, 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 it creates a very interesting sound in every scene. But in terms of balancing things, and in terms of the virtuosity that it demands of the players, because there is no hiding place for anybody, it's, it's a challenging work. And how many players do you have? Uh, well, we have, in the strings, we have something like, let me get this right. It's in the region of uh, 30 string players, six wind and brass players, three percussionists, a harpist, a keyboard player. Um, so it's a small, yeah. a small orchestra. Yeah. Uh, to glass, to glass his own orchestration. I it say. is his own orchestration, but this is. I mean, I had an interesting dialogue with with him and his his musical assistants about the scoring because it's quite flexible. In fact, the original version was done without double bass and with a synthesizer, which normally is a very kind of characteristic part of the glass sound world. And we discovered that actually he was very happy that if we had the real instruments, a real piano, a real celeste, a real harp, then that was preferable to using the synthesizer. So the yes. original scoring, which presumably for a, a very small pit in a small theatre, was a kind of first version for him. And the expansion of that into what we're doing is something that he's been very, very happy to hear about. Right. Uh, he's is he coming over, do we know? we do know is he'd like to come but I think the very day before they're doing Agnaton at the Met right and he's you know he's of a certain age and he doesn't yes. like really flying so much so yeah. I mean I hope he'll come at some point but I you know yes I would understand were he not to come but he's hoping to come but you know so we've we've spoken about the music and the and the drama of it um now what about the visual um uh, impact which is where I could go to uh, Corinne um you, you've been tasked with realising the makeup and costumes. Uh, just wigs and makeup. Wigs, wigs and makeup. Costume sorry. definitely not my area. Yeah. I'm afraid. Yeah, I mean, I was very, very lucky um, in that Nisha provided us um, with a full set of drawings. Probably the most organised I've ever had, really, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> so it was very clear from the beginning what um, her vision was for each character and what she was looking for. And she was also very generous with her time as well, so that helped enormously. So we had lots of chats um, before we even got to this stage, so it really helped. And also, being so organized, um, we knew about the filming, and that we were going to be doing a series of filming, and uh, that was really, really important because it actually affected the type of makeup that we selected, and also um, the type of wigs that we made, in particular the front lace. Um, but we had to balance that off with budgeting as well and usability for the show. Um, so when we do wigs for theatre, the, the front lace, which we hope you don't see. Sorry? Um, well, a wig is made of a foundation of terraline, and then there's a front on here, which is a bit that you see, and also the bit where the front hairline is knotted. Um, that is made out of Swiss lace. And Swiss lace comes in different deniers, like ladies' tights. So um, we usually use a 40 denier for um, theatre. Um, you can't see it from the stalls, um, but um, you can see it close up. Um, for film, they usually go down to sort of a 20, 15, or even 10, and that's like knotting on cobwebs. I mean, it's so fine, and it just doesn't last. So we have to find a compromise. 
And so we, we just went down a level to 30, which is what we normally do if we do any filming. So it makes it slightly finer, less visible. Obviously, we're relying on very good lighting. Um, but it also does have some strength still. So we know it's going to be good for the run as well, which is really important because we can't afford or have the time to redo them. So that was really important. And, um, but so we were able to plan. And um, yeah, it, it was really good. And also doing the filming means we've basically fixed a large number of the principal characters. Um, we know what they're going to look like. They can't change. Well, they can. But um, so that's helped us enormously as well. Um, so it means that we come much better prepared to stage for our stage and piano one. Um, and find that's, that's really helpful. Yeah, so it's, it's been really exciting. And the filming, we've done seven days so far, have we? Yeah. And the one day of pickups to go. So, yeah. Uh, you told me before we started this that, that you actually chose, because you, you are in charge of the department, so you actually chose to do this one because you're a particular glass fan. I am, yes. I mean, I absolutely adore Acknarton. I mean, for me, that was a total revelation. Um, I was lucky enough to, um, to assist the wigs and makeup supervisor for um, that show when it was first created here. Um, and then I revived it as supervisor um, earlier on in the year, and um, I've sent it out to LA, and I've sent it to the Met, and it's one of the first times we've actually sent all the wigs over. Um, on the proviso that they don't change a thing, so um, so they all come back, and they have to come back to us in show condition, and they've both been brilliant about that. So uh, it's a very important show for me. Um, I just, just visually, and really, it's just, it's just incredible. And so I'm really looking forward to this. Um, I am, I love Sasha Graha as well, but I have them both on recordings. I listen to them at home. Um, no, I, I absolutely adore Philip Glass. So, and I have actually met him very briefly once, which is very exciting, only because I had to take a picture of somebody with him. So I, I got to be behind the camera. So yeah. Um, did, yeah. did you meet him too, Misha, or did you yeah. spoken spoken to him? I met Philip in Paris, which was very nice, very apropos. Um, just as I've got a microphone in my hand, you all know this already because you're friends of this amazing company, but Corinne and her department are amazing. And this is, as Mark says, my debut. But what I have really found working here is it is literally a family. It's absolutely amazing. Each department is so skilled. The skill sets just have blown my mind. Wigs and makeup specifically, it's just amazing what this department creates. Costume as well. A costume has been very complicated because uh, actually, as an undertaking, four Orpheus myths, some of which are very enormous, you know, <laughs> it has been hard. It has. But the skills in this company just are extraordinary and often unsung. It's also really lovely to hear Corinne connecting so much with the music because what you forget actually is that of course the hair and makeup department and the costume department have to sit with us in the auditorium a lot of the time so actually if you have a connection with the music the whole process is is, is going to be a more fun and more enjoyable but one of my favorite days so far i mean we're rehearsing in lbh which is an extraordinary building in and of itself and you know at the top there's the dying department it feels a bit like gormenghast to me it's just extraordinary but before i even started on the whole project Corinne took me down into the basement of this building, 
And I've got quite a fictitious kind of mind, so it felt a bit Hansel and Gretel, you know, she kept on opening enormous iron doors and they would clang behind us. The, probably none of this happened, but this was also, <laughs> this was happening in my imagination. Anyway, we went down into the kind of, you know, the bowels of the building and she opened a big, I think it was a big turning wheel like this. It probably wasn't, but anyway, let's say that there was. And she opened this big iron and then inside there is a, a wooden chest of drawers, probably 400 drawers high, and you open it, and there's human hair inside of every kind of color. And then she opened the next one, and it was all red hair. I mean, this, the thing is extraordinary. So just that aspect of this company is, is fantastic and really, really exciting. And that everybody is working simultaneously and collaboratively. And you know, it, it's, it's been just a really lovely experience. I, I absolutely have to second that as well. Um, I was here as a young artist for about seven years until I kind of stretched that bracket beyond belief and wasn't really young anymore. But um, ha being a bold person, this lady here is the most important person in your life, <laughs> past your life partner. And there's been so many times when I've turned up in an international house and they've sent a wig from ENO, one of my wigs. So it kind of, kind of goes, goes around, you know, and Karina's somebody that can actually you know, t turn, you know, a slightly overweight Scottish man into, you know, a 20-year-old whatever, or a lech, or other things, and or a chauffeur. So absolutely, you know, kind of a, a life-changing lady here. Yeah, it, th that is, I suppose, the, the, the great thing about having a, a, a resident company in a building, is, is all those skill sets. And how big is your department? Um, we're nine. nine. So there's myself, there's two senior technicians underneath who both supervise shows as well. And then there's six technicians. So um, they're an incredible department. I mean, they really are. I mean, what a lot of people don't realize is that they're all wig makers. Um, they all wig dresses, which means they set and dress out styling wigs, which is a huge skill in itself. They are makeup artists. They are special effects makeup artists. And, um, and at least half of them are fully trained hairdressers, salon trained hairdressers and colorists as well. So if you imagine, that's almost like seven careers in one. Um, you know, it's quite a high expectation of them, and they're just brilliant. Um, they they make wigs um, in house, and they also run the show plots as well. So they're multi-skilled, and um, they're an incredible bunch of people, and I'm very very lucky. And you're resident within this building. Oh, we are, yes. So We're not too far away from stage either, which is really important. We do yeah. a lot of running around, I have to say, because it's quite a big theatre, and yeah. um, I mean, ladies' chorus can be further away. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jeffrey, presumably you have to work with a lot with the music department. Um, so yes. Uh, what's your reflections on the, the same thing with the music department? Is there a oh, well, I mean, yeah, it's, it's been wonderful. I actually, a, a few of the members, sort of, um, Martin Fitzpatrick, also head of music, I've known for a very long time. Um, Murray Hipkin, who's uh, one of the repetitors in this production, I've also known for a long time. So it's, it's very nice to have, to have met people that I have known kind of outside this place had some friendly faces. The level of cooperation is incredibly high. The level of enthusiasm, I mean, quite apart from the, the skill which one takes for granted until you realize that you shouldn't. I mean, it's extraordinary, the range of repertoire. I mean, I, I think at the moment, you know, to be, to be playing Gluck and Offenbach and Bert Whistle and Philip Glass all at the same time, and, and these pianists are working on multiple productions. Yeah. Um, piano reductions are never the most comfortable things to play, and they play with such extraordinary skill. But as I say, the enthusiasm, the commitment to it, and the, you know, all the extra little jobs that music staff um, are required to do. And it, speaking as somebody who spent a long time myself as a repetitor and as assistant conductor, 
all the little details of working with singers, giving notes, listening to diction, correcting things, communicating across the company. You know, every time there's a word in the translation that we think, or oh, maybe this could be this, or for instance, just today, there was a line that was to do with go, and because of the staging, it became come. That needs to then be communicated by the music staff to the library, will communicate it to the surtitling so that the surtitle is correct, so that for the records, for the production, for the covers, they have the right text. That the number of, of disparate tasks that are required, quite apart from the basic extraordinary skill of, of playing the music, <laughs> um, it's, it, it's, it's mind-blowing, and as I say, done with almost always with a smile and with, with a huge amount of willingness. And it makes my job really very easy and, and really enjoyable. Every day in the last four weeks, I've been looking forward to coming to work. And that's not always the case if you have colleagues in, in the music department who aren't constantly supporting you. And it's a wonderful thing. Presumably, communication is key. Um, and always. Uh, and a strong leader. Well, and, and this, this team, I mean, I, I, I think I'm probably speaking for everybody, that you know, it's not always the case that every single member of a team in the rehearsal room every day is on the same page and yeah. working with the same commitments. And it feels like that on this production. It really does. And since Nisha and I first met, um, so we haven't worked together either. We, we met probably about six months ago for the first time. And, you know, just sitting down over a coffee and starting to talk, and you feel that enormous wave of relief and you know the collaboration yes. is going to work. And many, in fact, most of the singers in the cast I've worked with in the past yeah. on different productions. Nick, we were, in fact, colleagues at the National Opera Studio we together were. in the dim and distant yeah. past. Yeah. Nikki and I in British Youth Opera, also in the relatively yeah. dim and distant <laughs> <laughs> past. Um, and that, th this family feel that Nisha refers yes. to, it, it's tangible in this production. Nisha, about the casting, how, did, how does that go happen here? Do you... Do, do you get suggestions or do you, do you bring suggestions? No, actually, no. And I've not worked with any of the singers before. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they... Th some houses you are really deeply involved in the casting and some you're not. And here I, I wasn't, and it, which is really risky. So I made sure to meet everybody, theoretically for a coffee, really, <laughs> to find out if they were psychopaths. <laughs> and <laughs> I was super happy because none of them were. So, obviously, I know everybody's work. You know, I've, I've seen everybody singing. I know them. And I know how they work and the kind, you know, the kind of work. But you just never know what a rehearsal room is going to be like. Um, and I'll share something with you. You know, a couple of years ago, I had a really horrendous experience in a rehearsal room. In a way, I think can only happen in opera. I think opera is one of the final art forms, really, to modernize we we accept a status quo possibly in all of classical music but specifically opera where it is hard to be female and we can't really avoid that as an issue it really is a true issue it's very it's very unusual to be a woman director this season is actually extraordinary that there are more women than men i've never heard of that before ever it's not nothing it really is something uh, I think that Annalise is now coming to the company is actually really quite something. And I think it's wor a conversation worth having. I, I suffered a great deal, and the production itself only just survived. It did. It got best opera of the year, actually, from somebody. Yeah. But nevertheless, the experience was so difficult and intimidating 
one person like that who brings in some other agenda that I never understood can really overturn your boat. And so I, I met everybody and I just felt, I knew that they were superb artists and they are. Uh, they really are. And on this stage, you can't really have anything less. I mean, not least you have to fill this gigantic void, not just in terms of dynamic and, and sound, but also kind of personality. And we just have a pristine cast. It, it, I couldn't have asked for more. It's absolutely superb. And, and more than that, everybody is generous, everybody is collaborative, and everybody has something to bring. So there's been all kinds of discussions. I would say Nikki actually knows this film better than I, and I've seen it probably a hundred times, so I don't know how that <laughs> happened. But there's a constant dialogue, there's constant joy and laughter in our rehearsal room. And you know that in itself, it not only does it make a lovely experience for us, but I think it, it feeds back, I hope it will feed back onto the stage. We still have some challenges because there are inevitable logistical challenges. This show, more than any show I've ever done, I've never had such a difficult preparation period for a show because we're sharing, the theory is I suppose that we're sharing a set with other, with other performances you know, and that has just created so many difficulties. And yet the joy has never gone out really uh, from day one in the rehearsal room. And, and I just thank them for being so amazing. How did that collaboration happen, just sharing all this, the, sharing this, the same unit set between you and the other directors? I think as an idea, I really understand it. I think when you're programming um, Bert Russell's Mask of Orpheus, you have to be very realistic about that as a company. It's gigantic. It simply is. And programming Philip Glass's Orphée in the same season is very sensible. It is significantly smaller. And then I think, you know, the idea of exploring the Orpheus myth, just to go back to one of your very early questions, Mark, Orpheus is, the myth of Orpheus, not only is it tied up so intrinsically in Western sensibility, it really is the history of opera. It was clearly the first opera ever written, what has been described as an opera, Peri's Eurydice. And hundreds of operas have been written on the subject of Orpheus and Eurydice, not for no reason. You know, here we have a musician and the story talks of the power of music. And that obviously is a starting point for a composer, is, is a nice place to start. So uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lovely and interesting idea. And these four projects couldn't really be more different. For me, what I found exciting about it was it opens up the idea that opera can be so many things. There isn't one way of doing an opera. An opera can really embrace dance. An opera can embrace um, a great experimentalism. An opera can be an entertainment, or an opera can include multimedia elements. So that, as a statement, is really nice. And the theory was, you know, that we would have a shared set. Of course, we are four directors with very different ideas, and that was never quite going to be possible. Yeah. And that has created logistically lots of problems. You know the ins and outs because you know a lot about opera and you know a lot about this house. But what they're attempting, which blows my mind, is a two-hour turnaround. It blows my mind a repertory house anyway. The fact that they change these enormous sets every day, it just seems ludicrous and unbelievable. And we do this for the poor little singers who can't sing two things in a row. But it's, am <laughs> it's absolutely amazing. <laughs> it is an amazing undertaking to change over a whole set just so that you don't repeat an opera. You know, If it were a play, you'd put it in and it would stay in for six weeks and everybody could c breathe a you know, sigh of relief. But they have to keep changing the set over and over. And, and, and because 
finances are reality. When you're putting on operas, they are expensive. For me, that's not a reason not to do it. It's a reason really to do it, but really to think about how to do it. I think it's the most amazing art form that just is a celebration of our uh, capacities as humans. And uh, this idea of this two-hour turnaround is just extraordinary. So uh, that's what happens between these Orpheus operas. They have two hours to transform one to the next, you know, which... And the other thing I've always found astonishing is the fact that you only give, you do all this work and then only do six performances. For me, six performances is loads. I've sometimes spent two hours making a, a, a production that is on once, you know, or, or maybe twice. So yes. actually six feels quite generous. I'm sure we'll all be bored after six. <laughs> yes. Um, shall we throw it open to some questions? Um, there's a, a mic, a roving mic. Would it be wise to see the film before seeing the opera? Well, I mean, I I think I think yes. I don't think there is any personally any element of spoiler alert. I I I, I think it's an extraordinary film. I mean, one could decide to save it. I don't think one in any sense one needs to in terms of preparation um, to see the opera. And uh, so it, it's 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 a. Uh, I would say a matter of, of, of personal choice, um, but I would certainly say seeing the film is—it's is, a fantastic yeah. film, either before or afterwards, and either way round, you'll see how the two things are related and what feeds into what. What research did you guys do for before you came to do to sing these roles? Did, what's your preparation? Um, well, I, as you'd, you'd seen Nisha alluded, I, well, I've, I've obviously I know the myth, and I did watch the film lots, especially before meeting for our coffee. And um, so I had something to bring to the table. Um, but if you do come and see it, you will not um, think about doing washing up the same ever again because there's some rubber gloves involved, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and it will make you think again when you reach for the fairy. <laughs> what about your preparation? Uh, well, the same, really. I mean, um, watching the movie and being aware of it and having had a had the meeting with Nisha as well. I had a bit of a flavour of the sort of things she wanted to do with it. Um, I didn't go back to... didn't see great value in going back to the original sort of uh, story or anything like that. I was aware of it and that was enough, I felt. Uh, but getting a flavour for the, for the movie without perhaps memorising that and being open to, to what we would take from it and what we wouldn't. Uh, yeah. And then it's a continual thing as we as we work, you know, I'm taking things away, scene away, I have a look at that, I go back over something. I may not show that in the rehearsal room, that, you know, <laughs> these what two may disagree whether they feel they've done any work outside the rehearsal room, but... What about musical preparation? Did you guys l learn the score before you came to rehearsal? I got it to a standard where hopefully I could get through it without embarrassing myself completely, but having worked on a few things in translation before and having had the conversation or the you know, communication with Jeffrey uh, via Nisha as well about some of the rhythmic or word changes, I, I got to a point where I was able, hopefully, apart from what I did today, <laughs> changing, changing text or moving a note around. Yeah. Um, personally, I'm, I'm not great. If I've learned something and it's in my muscle memory, I'm not I don't feel I'm quick enough to, to change that on the on the hop like that. I need to take it away and, and get it in my body and come back. Mm -hmm. So I've got it to a point where I felt I could do that and take on the new things that we did. Yeah, it's quite interesting. Sometimes you 
like to think that it's going to be a very organic process and you're going to have six months to study a role before you sing it. Uh, but for me, I was kind of caught on the hop a bit because I've been playing Jesus in a piece called The Greek Passion in, uh, for Opera North. So I've been doing Jesus by night and Dead Chauffeur by day. And um, I actually took it to a couple of coaches, which is my usual thing. I'll have, you know, I'll learn it myself and then I'll have some coachings to make sure I don't embarrass myself on day one. Um, but some of the coaches I took it to wouldn't, wouldn't kind of work on it because the score for them, because it's such a particular type of score, there's a lot of repetition marks in the score. So you have to remember what the tempo was and what the pattern was in the, the accompaniment from kind of six pages before. So it is a really kind of specialist um, niche. So I had to find somebody that was um, silly enough to do it with me. I was quite particular about the people that I approached, actually, of the coaches that I normally work with, knowing who was interested in glass and had that skill. I actually ended up taking it back to the person that unfortunately for them, worked on the trial with me and had that painful process. I, yeah, but I, I was painful in the sense of getting helping me to memorise it, I mean, not painful in working on the piece itself. Very you, you kind of discover as well that some people have got some kind of sick fascination and kink for this kind of music and really enjoy it, don't they? They love yeah, it. Yeah, and that's what you want because you want someone that can be passionate about it and kind of point out things that you know that you can hook onto and, and use. Very personal question for both of you. You may not want to answer, but do, do, you, do you pay for your coach yourself? Or does the company pay, pay for No, it? of course you pay for yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's important, actually, because it's um, something about being a professional. I think with any kind of artisan, that kind of exchange of currency is quite important because you feel like you're making an investment in yourself that yes. you're actually doing something for the production. So I think it's actually quite important. And it's very much a responsibility for you to know what you're doing on day one I'm sure yeah. we've all worked with colleagues when that's not been the case and it's you just can't play uh, if you're doing presumably some coaching is available in the company is it yeah well? absolutely we, we had coachings made available to us by, yes. by the company but you know timing things are different people yes. have gaps in their diaries at different times so you have to actually say well I need to work on this four months ago yes. or I need to work on it a year ago start on it and stop and yeah, yeah. And it's, it's definitely the nature of working in a company where you do have music staff who are there who are present that as you go along through a, a process that lasts several weeks, that singers can go away to a coaching room with one of the music staff and work on a little part of their role that they, yeah. they just need to polish up. And that process will continues and will always continue, you know, up until even between performances yeah. if necessary. And the next time you work here, you know some of those people and... Absolutely, so yeah. De yeah. De develop a, uh, a relationship with them. Yeah. yeah. I think there was a question down here. And then we'll come to you. Yes, I, I, I did uh, decide to watch the film before. Um, watch the film and then listen to a previous DVD um, version. Um, one thing that was astounding was that the English translation on the DVD text was exactly the same as the translation on the film, the, the subtitles. But, but the, the, I find it fascinating that you then set the music... The, the text of the film to music, whereas the text was never intended to be lyrical or musical. And so I wonder when you translate it into English, are you, you obviously don't take the subtitles from the film, are you tempted to make it more poetic, more lyrical to fit the music, or do you just translate it and let the music try and fit the, the text? That's a great question. So the way that Cocteau writes is, um, it looks, it's very much like the way Philip Glass writes. It looks very simple, 
but it is very complex. And actually, that's kind of the key for the whole project in every way. You know, the set looks very simple, but it's actually very complex. The music sounds as if it's simple, but it's actually very complex. And this language of cocktails is very simple but sophisticated. And so what I was keen to do is reflect that. So rather than be influenced by a kind of sound world, it was really to try and keep with the flavor of the Cocteau, which I think Philip has really understood. An interesting thing about the way Philip writes, which Jeffrey and I were talking about on the tube on the way over, is that a lot of the lines are very, it's not that they're static, because I wouldn't say that this piece is static at all, but they don't have huge, you know, high peaks and, and deepest drops, exactly. And so there is a kind of, there is a, a kind of limited bandwidth, if you like, and actually, that works so well with the writing of Cocteau. He's very subtle, but he has humor, and um, he's very clever. And I think there is a strangely kind of opportune relationship between the music of Philip Glass and the words of Jean Cocteau in a way that you wouldn't put them together. Why would you put them together? Uh, and yet, they work very, very well. Well, you know, everything, I don't believe in translation. I think translation is an act of desecration. But, nevertheless, we did it. And um, you, you I inevitably, in any kind of translation, something is lost. That's a famous aphorism. You know, one does that. Uh, but at the same time, as I uh, began to talk about earlier on, there's something wonderfully, slightly American about this piece. It is this really, and I'm very interested in that relationship because if you think about it, so many American composers have been to Paris and are highly influenced by their time there. Many, many American composers studied with Nadia Boulanger, who Philip Glass studied with, and, and his time with her actually affected him and his musical thinking more than anybody else I can think of, actually. Um, but this, for me, that relationship between Paris and America is very interesting and is, is kind of within our piece. So in the act of translation, one becomes kind of aware of both of those things. There's no such thing as a perfect translation. That's just not possible. Uh, but so I, I was kind of driving at something that falls somewhere between those two worlds. Have the four directors of this series had deliberate awareness of what each other was doing? So that's a good, very, very good question. And we met once, and we met a long time ago. And we had a kind of round table. It was really fun. You know, you never meet other directors. You just don't. It's not part of the thing. You might pass them up for openings or things like this, but you just really don't. And we had a kind of first round table meeting, and we discussed our operas and the myth itself. And I had thought possibly that there might be kind of an ongoing conversation because that's a very interesting kind of idea. But I think sometimes the, the reality of logistics, of international timetables and other projects, I had absolutely zero idea. I've, I've gone to see all of the other three operas as well. And I had absolutely zero idea what to expect. Um, really, I had no idea at all. Um, and so, you know, the answer has been no. But it's just an interesting, even just going to see their shows and knowing that they've, you know, been working in this same kind of um, world is interesting. Another question? 
anybody? Cat's punch. Well, that's a really good question because obviously sung lines take longer than spoken lines. And so our opera is marginally longer than the film, although some parts of the film have been cut. But I'm really interested in this relationship between film and, um, and live music, obviously, as was Philip Glass. And when Philip was a young student in Paris, an impoverished student, he and his friends would go and do doublage, dubbing. They would make money dubbing films. And the idea of dubbing obviously infiltrated into the imagination of Philip Glass because one of the other pieces in this trilogy uh, of Cocteau films is La Belle et la Bête, where he's taken the film and he literally does a live dub. So the singers have to watch the film and they sing the lines that the actors are speaking. Philip said, I found I had this facility for matching the mouth shapes with the sounds. It's tremendously difficult for the singers. They have to literally watch it like this, as in dubbing, and sing, and, and so he's made these fantastically short lines in that piece that kind of fit that, you know, because one speaks so much more quickly than one sings. So our opera doesn't have that per se, but I have put a scene in of dubbing. It'll be hugely unpopular, but nevertheless, I love it. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's because it's a nod to Philip Glass. I've, I've wanted to expand the piece very briefly to explain why. 10 years after he made Orphée, Cocteau made a film called The Testament of Orphée, where he took some bits and pieces of furniture from the film and the actors from the film, he puts them in a big open film studio and he investigates the film, he puts the film on trial. He puts himself on trial and he puts poetry on trial. It was the year before he died, it was the last film he ever made and it was a kind of retrospective, it was a kind of thinking of his whole oeuvre, if you like. And I thought that was a really lovely place to start for us, not least because I was presented with a a grey empty box to work in. But I thought, how does that relate to our film? It relates really to the testament of Orphée and the fact that Philip has, he, he says, he has, I can't remember the exact quote, but something like he has investigated the film through music, which is, you know, a really interesting idea. And that's, you know, that, that takes us into a world where, as I said earlier, it is itself and it's also about itself. But it's slightly longer, I think, our, our opera than the film marginally. So La Belle et la Bête, is, is that, does that, they show the film simultaneously? Yeah, they show the film at the back and the singers stand at the front and they've, the conductor, poor guy, is on a click track, which I don't believe in. I think yes. click tracks are not live music, but nevertheless, that's, the, that's this, the undertaking of this piece. And the singers are watching it. I mean, we do a scene in our show which is evoking that and they have to, follow the lip movements of the singers. I mean, it's kind of super fun. But a, a bit like the, the film, the live versions of Koenoscatsi and Paraskatsi, where the orchestra are performing the music live mm. to the film while the film is being shown. I've, I've been to that twice, I think, now, because mm. they're, so they're, they're so incredible. They are incredible. Uh, Glass, in both cases, uh, both times yeah. I saw it, he was conducting it himself. Yeah. It has to be so precise, yeah. because it's live performance with parallel with film. Yeah, but Ger Jeffrey might want to speak about this, because we've spoken about click tracks a little bit, and one thing that Jeffrey said, which really surprised me, was oh, there's something quite fun about working with a click track. I always thought they were anathema, you know, it's a, like uh, amplification. One can't have click tracks in opera, that's a terrible thing. But actually there is an interesting exploration to be had, you know, with the idea of, as Jeffrey describes, a very, very regular tempo. I mean, that's an interesting idea. And, uh, and you know, well, a click I track mean, forces that. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's one, well, it's not something one would want to do every day. And I say in these the jazz projects that I do quite often, sometimes we use click track, often not. 
But what it does, it's like, I mean, it's like if you're a string player and you're told not to use vibrato. It's one kind of one part of your armory that you're not allowed to use, and immediately every other bit of your armory becomes more important. And and I say the the discipline for this piece, without a click in my ear, is to keep a tempo that is so reliable that finds expression and warmth, um, and well, and spontaneity. It seems a kind of paradox to find spontaneity while the basic pulse underlying what you're doing is mechanical. And I think, I mean, there's an element of technical wizardry that, that I have no idea how, how Nisha does it or will do it. That, of course, because I'm a human being, my basic tempo is never going to be exactly the same from night to night. So the duration of a certain bit of music for which there is some film material may be by a second or two different every night. And there, there are magic tricks galore, I believe, that I, I shall never understand that, that makes these things work. Presumably, you're, presumably you're watching the film. I, well. I, I, I will see it, but it's a, yeah, I mean, I've done, I, I, last year I, there's this film of, of Rosenkavalier that was made that Strauss actually kind of docked his score for that I conducted last year with the OE, where you conduct live music to the film, um, trying to find all the coordination points without click track, without any technical help. Um, and it's an extraordinarily difficult thing to do. Um, but that's not... It's been made very clear by, by our wonderful director that I am not required to look at the film and catch points, that I can make music and the film will, the film will, will be there at the same time. It's an extraordinary thing. Any more questions? No? Up oh, here we go, the front. It's a fairly personal question, Nietzsche. How much musical background do you have? I come from a family of musicians. I played the violin when I was young. I was at the junior academy, and I think there was every expectation that I would continue. At the age of 18, I put down my violin, and I have never played it again. <laughs> However, this was part of, instead of getting a tattoo, that's what I did to you know, rebel. It, I, it was, it was m hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of practice in my youth. But it has furnished me with a fearlessness. I'm not scared of music or musicians. I understand what they do and I love what they do and I appreciate it. And I'm very conversant. So nobody can pull the wool over my eyes. Sometimes singers try and get away with things. Uh-uh. No, I, I, uh, I'm very confident with that. But my, I think probably we were talking about this as well on the tube. We were having so many conversations on the tube. Um, it's, I could safely tell you that music is the most central pillar in my life. I can't imagine a life without music. And it's also my driving force in all of my work. So although I have spent my entire adult life exploring this relationship of um, specifically, you know, projections and film with live music, the critical thing for me is that music leads. It has to be the most important thing. I think probably that's why I feel so strong about translation. I don't feel that an opera is expressed through its libretti. Well, this is a whole argument to be had. For me, it's, it, 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 is, it is a form which is led by music. It, in, it envelops all of these other tremendous art forms, visuals and, you know, extraordinary other things. And yet my connection, my visceral connection with it is certainly through the music. And so I think that kind of informs all of my choices 
at every moment, really. I'd, I'd probably like to add at this stage as well what a relief it is to work with a director that knows not only the music that you're doing so well, but the actual medium in general. Um, there has been times where you work with a director when they're running around with a CD booklet saying, well, you know, it's only got these lines here, but then there's another five minutes that they have to fill which they didn't reckon on. So it, it is, it's a real, oh yeah, it happens now. <laughs> but no, it's a, real, it's, a real, it's a real joy. So really, you know, Nisha knows his music backwards. Is there one last question? Give you the one more, one more chance. Um, well, I, can I just ask also, my, uh, a parting question to you guys is, somebody who doesn't know Glass, what, how would you sell this show to them? How would you, how would you tell them, what, what, why would you tell them to come? Well, I don't, I mean, as somebody who doesn't know Glass, I mean, as I said, it almost becomes, it, it's not, it's somehow not relevant whether it's Glass or not. Yes. So it's an, it is an opera of a film, of an extraordinary film, extraordinarily entertaining and peculiar film with wonderful music and, and, and wonderful singing and characterization. And simple as that, really. So you made something brand new of it? Oh, I, th I think so. I, I mean, Nisha's work on the stage is something else. It's, and we've yet to see, until we're in this building in a couple of weeks' time, I've yet to see yeah. how it will be. But it's going to be a very exciting prospect. So two more weeks of, at, uh, at, of rehearsal and then, then down, down here. Two more weeks of rehearsal and then onto the stage. I would say about this piece that it is very humorous, it's extremely entertaining, and it has an unexpected profundity. It is unbelievably humane. So we have this very surreal story, and everything is slightly bizarre. But what we're actually seeing is human relationships, and that, in the end, is what will draw us in. Never mind the clever clogs, projections, and the frame, and the framing of the frame, and the meta-textual capacity of this piece, all of which is there. Finally, and thanks to the immense skill and humanity of our performers, what I hope is that we really care about these people, and we can connect to them on, on that emotional level. Yeah, you want to come and see it just for Nisha's production. I mean, it's irrelevant what we're, we're singing. I think that the, the piece as a whole... No, but it definitely the human relationships thing. I, I think you'll see Orfei and Eredis uh, in a very different light to what you've seen them in the other productions as well. So in terms of contrast, you're going to get a complete contrast to the other ones you've seen. Um, and I think that the pacing of the scenes is quite interesting as well. Like going back to what you said, we've got one scene that goes longer than the, the, the average of about three minutes. The, the, the Act 1 finale, I suppose you could call it, that's not really like a finale in, in another piece, uh, is the, has the longest dramatic arc and the longest, it lasts the longest amount of time. But uh, come and see it for Nisha's production, definitely. And it, I'd say as well that it's kind of almost anti-operatic in a way. You don't really repeat words very often because it's taken verbatim from the film, which is really refreshing for us. There's no kind of de capos where you have to add stuff in. And uh, as an actor as well, um, we're, it's quite natural. There's a lot of kind of naturalistic Con acting. Conversational, no set pieces. Absolutely. Sort of so, so yeah. you know, and no dance routines for me, which is just... <laughs> just, just yet, just yet. Yeah, Not yet. <laughs> we haven't staged the last scene. We're, we're all hoping. And of course, they should also come and see the weeks and makeup as well. Absolutely. Of course, yes. <laughs> yes. Of course. So on that note, I'd like to thank, thank our panel for, for joining us and for you guys for supporting this, this, this brilliant company. Thank you. Thank you.